0: Matthew chapter 4. Uh, Let's read our text this morning, beginning with verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But Jesus answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge over you. And in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. And you should note that the Lord is capitalized, meaning it was the unspoken name, uh, Jehovah. Again, the devil took Jesus up On an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and ministered to him. When you approach such a famous passage of scripture like the temptation of Jesus... Case in point, this story is included in all three of the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They all record this particular event. It's very documented. But when you approach a passage like this, something that's famous, it's always, at least I find, important to begin by placing the occasion within the context of the flow of the narrative as well as within the much larger purpose of the Gospel itself. Now, as we've noted, but it bears repeating, as a Hebrew man, that was both religious and possessed a scholarly upbringing, Matthew, our author, he is writing to the Jewish people with the specific intention of presenting Jesus as their promised king. With this in mind, it's significant that Matthew then places the temptation of Christ directly following Jesus' baptism and, more importantly, that glorious declaration made by God from heaven of Jesus, this is my beloved Son, and whom I am well pleased. So that's kind of the context. If you go all the way back to Genesis 3, verse 15, while God was pronouncing the various curses on account of man's original sin, God told Satan, He said, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This reference to the seed of the woman it indicates that the ultimate savior of mankind and subsequently judge of Satan would be a man born through a miraculous conception. A conception that would exclude the seed of man, Adam, and only involve the woman, the seed of the woman. The implication of this important prophecy was that Jesus, the Messiah, would be human, but he would also possess a uniquely divine nature and publicly announcing Jesus to all those who had gathered there at the banks of the Jordan River as my beloved Son and whom I am well pleased. God was doing more than just affirming His love and His pleasure. God was declaring at the baptism of Jesus that He was the fulfillment of this important Genesis 3.15 prophecy. Jesus, supernaturally conceived of a virgin, did not share the bloodline Of sinful man, for he was the Son of God. Theologically, the idea of Jesus being what we would call the second Adam, coming to earth in order to atone for the sins of the first, it's an important concept. While in Adam, we were all given a fallen nature at birth, that's why we don't have to learn how to sin, we're real good at it. In Jesus, the second Adam, we are declared sinless found right in the eyes of God, and made new through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. In John 3, you can read a little bit more of Jesus' expose about this idea. He calls it being born, again, a new birth. In fact, the Apostle Paul will expound on this critical idea in Romans 5, and then he'll do it again in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 21 and 22, when he writes, For since by man came death, by man, capital M, also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. Now, there is a lot of practical application that we can draw from this story of the temptation of Jesus. and specifically application and the way in which Jesus handles the temptation and the tenter. And we will get to that. But always keep in mind that the fundamental purpose of this story following the affirmation of Jesus being the Son of God at his baptism, was to test and verify that claim. Was Jesus actually the Son of God? In fact, in the Greek, the English word we have translated as tempt in this passage would be better translated as to test. Whereas the first sinless man, Adam, tragically succumbed to the temptation of the enemy way back in the Garden of Eden. And his capacity as the second sinless man ever born on earth, Jesus' ability to stand toe to toe with Satan and emerge victoriously validated his claim of deity, that he was, as God declared, the Son of God. Again, writing to a Jewish audience, this simple detail that our story begins telling us that Jesus had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness. That detail to a Jew would have raised a few eyebrows. You see, in the Old Testament, there were only two other people who fasted for 40 days. In Exodus 34, Moses went without food or water, supernaturally preserved by God, as God was giving him the law. In 1 Kings 19, we read of the same occurrence happening in the life of the prophet the greatest prophet elijah incredibly we'll see this uh, next sunday in the sermon on the mount matthew 5 verse 17 that jesus had come to do what to fulfill the law and the prophets there's a lot of nuances and in fact there's another subtle detail that i think a jewish audience would have picked up regarding the kingship of jesus himself understand from a Jewish perspective up until this moment in time there had been no greater king in Israel other than David and, and what's happening here is that Matthew was writing presenting Jesus as the king in fact the Jews believed that the only king that would ever be greater than David would be the Messiah would be the Christ Now, I can't say this for sure it's a little speculation so give me some license But I believe that the way that Matthew establishes the narrative intends to create an interesting link, a connection, that a Jewish audience would have picked up on between Jesus and the story of King David. According to 1 Samuel 16, verse 13, David comes out of total obscurity to be anointed by Samuel, the next king over Israel signifying David had been chosen by God to lead his people. We read that Samuel took the horn of oil, anointed him in the midst of his brothers, his brethren, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. Does that sound familiar at all? And then in the next chapter, it's interesting, we get a story of this newly anointed king taking on Israel's greatest foe, Goliath. And what? Emerging victorious. You know how the, that story is set? In, in 1 Samuel 17, verse 16, we read that the Philistine drew near. And now we know he came to, to mock the God of Israel. But we're told the Philistine came, uh, drew near, and presented himself 40 days, morning and evening. Consider, in Matthew 3, Jesus comes out of total obscurity to be anointed by God as the king. An an anointing that manifests with the Holy Spirit coming upon him, just like David. Then the next scene, we had Jesus, this anointed king, taking on the greatest foe of all humanity, Satan, after a period of 40 days and 40 nights and proving himself victorious. I know it might be a stretch, but could it be that Matthew was setting up this parallel with David in order to demonstrate how Jesus was indeed a greater king, and therefore the Messiah. When preachers approach stories like this one, and I'm going to get on a little soapbox for a moment, so bear with me. When preachers approach passages like this, they almost always fall back to a belief that the main purpose was Jesus somehow demonstrating his relatability with sinners. You get that with the baptism. You know, it's difficult to explain. Well, Jesus is wanting to relate to sinners and his temptation situation. Well, Jesus is wanting to relate to sinners. And to be fair, I mean, Jesus does have the ability to sympathize with our weaknesses because he was in all points tempted as we yet emerged without sin. We know that Hebrews 4, 15. That said, Jesus's ability to sympathize with sinners is a much different thing than being relatable. With regards to the temptation of Jesus and this idea that the whole story is you know, reinforcing his relatability, there is a genuine criticism that arises. Like, since we know that Jesus is God and therefore lacked the, the, even the capacity to willfully sin, you think, well, how then are Jesus' experiences with the... If Jesus couldn't sin, then how's his temptation scenario... Relatable to mine in any way. And that's a fair criticism. And please don't be mistaken. No matter what Satan tried, or what he would throw at Jesus, there was no way that Jesus was going to relent to Satan and sin. Jesus was God. He couldn't. He wasn't born of a sin nature. And Jesus couldn't rebel against himself. He's God. To this point, I contend that Jesus' experience his temptation experience isn't relatable. Especially to mine. And in fact, I don't think the relatability angle is even even part of the story. I don't think it's the whole purpose of the story at all. Again, Jesus was tempted in order to demonstrate that where Adam had failed, he easily proved to be the victor. Because he was God. And when we talk about the humanity of Jesus. I really don't like the typical explanation that he was doing something in order to identify with sinners or to make himself relatable. I just don't like it at all. You know, since I I was facing death and an eternal punishment, judgment as a sinner, you know, in that scenario, my primary concern wasn't finding a Savior who could identify with my experiences and was somehow relatable. You know, in that situation, as a sinner, you know what I want more than relatability, more than being able to identify? What's up, bro? I want one who's able to save. I don't care if you can relate. I need to know you're able. Honestly, with regards to all leaders, right? Aren't actions that inspire confidence so much more important than relatability? Well, it's true that there are several profound lessons that we can and will draw from the passage, I'm convinced that Matthew's purpose in recording this story wasn't to make Jesus more relatable to sinners, but to demonstrate to sinners how worthy Jesus is to be our king. Let me give you an easy example of this. You know, regarding the very nature of temptation, We're told in 1 Corinthians that we'll never be tempted beyond what we could handle. You know the famous passage. Basically, a temptation will never be allowed to violate our free will, our ability to resist it. We'll never be tempted beyond what we have the capacity to handle. Now, it's true, though, that God will allow the pressures of temptation to rise to a breaking point, push us, challenge us, stretch us, grow us, but never beyond God will never allow it beyond what we can handle. Now, you can probably understand that from a personal, practical sense. We've all experienced temptation. But think about the implications of that idea regarding temptation to Jesus. Jesus is God, meaning he couldn't sin, meaning he doesn't have a breaking point. There's no threshold beyond what Jesus could handle, meaning that Jesus experienced a level of temptation, you and I can't even begin to fathom. Like, you could argue that during these 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus underwent the most extreme period of temptation that any human being has ever experienced. And yet, he proved victorious. I can't relate to that. But it's absolutely inspiring, isn't it? Let's look at how the story begins. Let's go back to verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, immediately following his baptism by John, Jesus departs the Jordan River area there at Bethabara, and he's led by the Spirit, we're told, into the wilderness. Now, this word, the wilderness, it doesn't provide for us any type of definitive geographic markers but it does tell us the word itself that Jesus ventured out, was led, Mark would say, dr- driven into the wilderness. And he's he's in a solitary, kind of lonely, desolate place that's completely uninhabited. Imagine Jesus' 40 days here was like the original pilot episode of Man vs. Wild. That's what we've got going. He's by himself in the wilderness. And furthermore, we're told that Jesus was led by the Spirit into this rough terrain, indicating that this... This solitude, it was intentional. In fact, it was essential. It was an essential part of God's plan for Jesus' life. And for the reasons that I li- previously listed, Jesus was led into the wilderness, this place of isolation, so that he could be tempted by the devil. That's what we're told. For what reason? So that he could then emerge victoriously, demonstrate a sinless character as the second Adam, and doing so, validate his identity as the Son of God, and the rightful king greater than David. Now Mark's account of this story recorded for us in the 12th and 13th verses of the first chapter of his gospel. They're brief. This recount, his story, is, recounting of the story is brief, but it's insightful. Mark writes that immediately the Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness, so there was no delay between his baptism and this event. And he was there in the wilderness 40 days, tempted by Satan, and was with the wild beasts. Aside from this mention of wild beasts, the verbiage that Mark uses suggests that Jesus was tempted by Satan throughout the the entirety of the 40 days. With then the example of these three provided by Matthew and again by Luke happening at the end. So this is a 40 days of temptation. The three that we have recorded happen at the end. And really the only reason we have any of it recorded is that Jesus told the disciples about the event. No one else was there. Well, in the first verse, Matthew tells us the tempter was the devil. The devil. In verse 10, Jesus then identifies the devil As being more specifically, Satan. Now, Satan is first introduced to us as the great serpent of old. Back in Genesis 3, he's also known by Lucifer. He had once been the most angelic being in all of heaven, charged with leading the worship of God around the throne of God until his heart swelled with pride and he instigated an angelic rebellion. Out of spite, Satan then tempted Eve And the rest is history, as they say. It's interesting that within the Scriptures, we only have Satan's voice recorded on three occasions. In Genesis 3, Satan verbally slanders the nature of God before man. Then in Job 1, Satan verbally slanders the nature of man before God. Now in Matthew 4, Satan's challenge is to somehow try to get the man, Jesus, to slander the nature of his God. In 1 John 2, verses 15 and 16, we find the following exhortation that explains really a ton about the nature of temptation itself. John writes, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, and then he lists the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. Regarding temptation, this passage indicates that there are really only three categories in which the enemy will seek to entice a person to move out from God's will and into rebellion. Satan will use, first, the lust of the flesh. This would be our physical desires, the physical desires of our fallen nature, the body. He'll also try to use the lust of the eyes. This would be a sensory appeal uh, to our fallen nature, the mind, the imagination. Thirdly, the pride of life or our core ego, the ego of our fallen nature, the soul. And he does this to get a person again to substitute God's will for their life for their own. A case in point, in his temptation of Eve in Genesis 3, we read, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, lust of the flesh, physical desires, the body, that it was pleasant to the eyes, lust of the eyes, a sensory appeal, the mind, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, the pride of life, ego, the soul, she took of its fruit, gave it to her husband, and they ate. Another example and his cautioning of pastors, those in the ministry. Billy Graham, the famed evangelist, he always warned of the lure of women, flesh, possessions, the eye, and position, ego. With this understanding, that the goal of all temptation is to entice a person to act contrary to the will of God. And the temptation of Jesus Instead of trusting God to act in his life according to his will and in his timing, Satan attempts to get Jesus to take into his hands three things. God's provisions, using the physical desire of his flesh. God's promises, by making a sensory appeal to to his eyes, the mind. As well as God's plan, by appealing to the pride of life. So God's provision... Lust of the flesh. God's promises, lust of the eyes. God's plan, the pride of life. Let's look at the first of the the three temptations. Verse two. And when Jesus had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward, he was hungry. Uh, True words. Uh, If you've ever um, embarked on any type of fast, um, for me, it's about a 40-minute fast. That's That's about what I do. And I'll tell you, at the end of the 40 minutes, I'm hungry. I'm kind of hungry all the time. Uh, Medical professionals tell us, uh, and again, I'm only kind of quoting them. This is not from firsthand experience in any way. But that, like, when you go into a long fast, like you're hungry to begin with. First several days, I mean, you're you're ready to eat. Everything looks like a hamburger. You know, you're ready to rock. But at some point, your body's kind of like done arguing with you. And it's like, well, you're not gonna feed me, and I'm just ornery. So it actually starts, it turns off that hunger mechanism. So that for the vast majority, after several days going into the weeks, like you're not hungry. It's it's an easier fast at that point. However, at the end of 40 days and 40 nights, medical professionals tell us a hunger reemerges that is like the body's alarm system you're dying. If you don't eat, we're not going to make it. The body starts eating your organs. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a crazy thing. In fact, when you come out of a 40-day fast, they say you've got to be very, very careful in, in kind of what you eat, how much you eat, kind of reacclimating acclimating your, your body. So when we're told that Jesus was hungry, he's hungry. As hungry as you can get. Now, when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God. Now, there there are a lot of pastors that will try to twist the word if to say since. I, I don't buy it. Again, the entire purpose of the experience is Satan testing his divinity. If you are the Son of God. I know the Father said it at your baptism, but if you really are, if you really are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But Jesus answered and said, It is written, and, and, and I, every time I read this, I always get an old English uh, in my in my the old Jesus movie. Men should not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's how I always read it. And the goal of this first satanic temptation it's to entice Jesus to take into his own hands God's provisions. By appealing to his obvious physical hunger, his bodily desires, the lust of the flesh. Like in a way, Satan is saying, Jesus, if you really are God's son, and he led you into the wilderness, why hasn't he given you any food? I mean, Jesus, you're starving to death. Don't you think you should do something about it? You see, the core strategy of Satan here was to attempt to get Jesus to first question God's willingness to provide for his physical needs. He was really hungry. And he does that in order to then try to entice Jesus to step outside of God's will to provide bread for himself. And keep in mind, Jesus had the ability to command the stones to turn into loaves of bread. But only if God, his Father, willed it. This is why... In response to this temptation, Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. He says, it is written. I love that phrase, I should add. It is written. It's in the the perfect tense. Uh, Meaning that, that Jesus is saying, it has been written, and what was written stands that way today. It's perfect. It is written. Man should not live by bread alone. Like, our lives are so much more than our physical desires But, and you you could add for context, man shall live by every word that proceeds or continually proceeds from the mouth of God. In his retort here to Satan, Jesus affirms that his obedience to God's will, as articulated to him through God's word, was infinitely more important than satisfying a physical need or desire. While Jesus was hungry, and he could satisfy that hunger by providing bread. The fact remained his father had not told him to do so, so he would choose, instead to remain hungry. Jesus is kind of saying, he's saying, he's like, "I'd rather wait on God to provide for my needs than to take matters into my own hands." Now, in our lives, there's no question that there are a crazy number of applications that we can draw from this first temptation because, well, we all have varying physical needs and desires. Yet, for simplicity's sake, to just illustrate the application, I'm just going to pick one, and that's sex. Like, sex is a very real, genuine, physical desire. Don't know if you've experienced that. But sex, God created it. He hardwired people. He created humanity to enjoy it, to experience it. That said, God also instituted very specific parameters for how our sexual hunger is to be satisfied. Specifically, God determined the how, the mechanism, and the when, the timing. Now, our society absolutely hates the fact that God determined ideals, and and tragically, our society rejects those ideals. But the Scriptures are clear that our sexual desires should be enjoyed in a heterosexual monogamy within matrimony. I'll say that again. I thought it was clever. A heterosexual monogamy within matrimony. Like in the end, when it comes to satisfying sexual hunger, which are real, you have to consider what Jesus did here, right? First, the hunger's real. I mean, I'm hungry. But what's more important in my life? Eating or obeying God? And secondly, do you believe that God is good and will provide for your needs according to his perfect timing? Like, do you really believe that God's plan is for you to starve to death? I think not. Let's look at the second of these three temptations. Verse 5. Then the devil took Jesus up into the holy city. This would be Jerusalem set him on the pinnacle of the temple, a little debate about where that was specifically, likely part of the fortress of Antonio, Uh, 200 or so feet above the floor of the Kidron Valley. So 200 feet, that's quite a ways up. And said to him, if you are the Son of God, again, questioning, asking for a validity, if you really are, throw yourself down. For it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to Satan, it is written again, it is written, it stands written, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. And this second satanic temptation. The goal was to entice Jesus to use God's promises for his own ends. And he does this by making a sensory appeal to his mind, his imagination, the lust of the eyes. Satan, clever. I mean, he knows what God said in Psalms 91 of the angels. How? He was himself an angel. So he's familiar with it. And he uses this promise that God had made of the angelic host to appeal to Jesus' imagination. I mean, clearly, right? Jesus is at the beginning of his ministry. He's an unknown quantity. Jumping off the pinnacle of the temple in a very public place and having these angels rush down so that you lightly float, flutter down. You know, I mean, the scene itself, I mean, it would have been awesome. It would have yielded instant fame. It's as though Satan is saying, Jesus, like, just imagine the spectacle. I mean, God made these promises, right? Why would he make promises for you not to use them? Like, take advantage of them, further your ministry. You know, ironically, while Satan does demonstrate a knowledge of the Scriptures here, he also presents for us a perfect example of how a passage can be twisted and manipulated for well, wrong ends. You don't have to turn there; I'll read it. But Satan omits something from this passage. Psalm again, ninety-one verses eleven and twelve. The text actually reads, "For he shall give his angels charge over you." Cool to keep you in all your ways, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against the stone. To keep you in all your ways, Satan omits. You see, the promise that God had made was about preserving Jesus' way, not enabling him to circumvent it. You know, never forget God's promises to you, and there are many in the scriptures. I would encourage you to Study that on your own. There are glorious promises in the scriptures that God has for you, but they're, they're God's promises. <laughs> they're His promises that He's made to you to be fulfilled in His timing and in His way to accomplish His will. You know, anytime that we try to co opt these promises for our purposes, we end up placing God into a very impossible situation. Which is why, in response, what does Jesus say? He quotes from Deuteronomy 6, verse 16. He says, it is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Now, I've wrestled with the application of this passage, this, of this temptation. Because it's very specific to Jesus. You were not given the promise that if you jumped off, an angel would rescue you. That's to Jesus, not to you. And yet, as, I've, as I was just chewing on the application of how this relates to me and to you guys, you know, I think that anytime, anytime something happens in our lives where we're left believing, and it's a lie, but we're left believing that God has let us down. That God has failed to make good on His promises. I think when we're in those moments, we're guilty of falling into this trap. Here's why. You know, in my life, I have found that God's promises never fail. What fails are the times that I seek to twist his promises to justify just doing what I want to do. Look at the last of the three temptations. Verse 8. Again, the devil took Jesus up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. Now, again, you'll find different scholars, different positions. I think this is a vision. We're not given the identity of the high mountain, even from a high mountain. I don't know how you see all the kingdoms of the world. It's a, it's a circle. Um, or their glory. So I think that there's something spiritual happening here. In the divine realm. Satan says to him, all these things I will give you. If you fall down and worship me. And notice, I, I, I'd never seen this before. And I think Matthew presents a different order than Luke does. But, but notice, if you are the son of God, first one. If you are the Son of God, the second one. Notice this one. There's no questioning. Like at this juncture, Satan has reached the conclusion that Jesus is the Son of God. So he says, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. But Jesus said, away with you, Satan. I love the old King James for moments like this. Get thee hence. (laughs) For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you shall you serve. It's as though Jesus is saying, "Satan, we've done this tango. Don't forget who you're talking to. You know who I am. So don't overstep. Only God is to be worshipped. Only God is to be served, and that's applicable to you too, buddy. So the devil left him. Beheld." Behold, angels came and ministered to him. And this final temptation, Satan is attempting to get Jesus to take into his hands the fulfillment of God's plan for his life. And he does this by appealing to the pride of life, the ego. Jesus, I have no doubts, you're the son of God. And because I know you're the son of God, I know what you're here to do. You've come to save the world. Well, I can give it to you. As long as you give me what I want. Understand, the worship of God has always been what Satan has craved. And from his estimation, what could be better than the actual worship of God? It's worth noting, Satan is so obsessed with this aim that he's willing to trade all of the kingdoms of the world and their glory just to have Jesus bend the knee and give him what he believes is his rightful due. Keep in mind about Satan. Satan is a created, finite being. Satan is not everywhere. He's not omnipresent. He's limited to time and space. He doesn't know the end from the beginning or the beginning from the end. Satan is not all-knowing. So it's unlikely that Satan knew that Jesus' death on the cross specifically was his destiny. But he was aware, just from the testimony of Scripture, that Jesus' journey would include incredible pain and suffering. So, and he offers him all the kingdoms of the world, and in doing this, Satan is, is giving Jesus an alternate path, an alternate way to accomplish God's will, God's plan. And the truth, the application of this, it couldn't be any more simple, friend. You see, there is only one way that you will ever be able to see God's perfect will accomplished in your life. And it also comes through a cross that was at Calvary, upon which Jesus was nailed. There will be times that Satan, he will appeal to your ego, he'll uh, appeal to your pride, he'll tell you, hey friend, you can get the most out of this life apart from Jesus. But it is a lie from the pit of hell. At this point, Jesus has had enough. We read, he issues the command, away with you, Satan. Then he quotes Deuteronomy 6, verse 13. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Friend, living a life of worship and service to the Lord your God is the key to seeing God's perfect will accomplished in you. Upon the command. Matthew says two things happen. Interesting. The devil leaves, which reveals to us that even Satan was subject to Jesus' Jesus's authority. Telling us what? He's the Son of God. Secondly, I love it. Matthew adds, he says, Behold! Angels came and ministered to him. You know, in the original language, anytime you run across, behold. It's a term used by the author. To indicate to the reader that what you're about to read, you should take a moment and just think about. Behold. What comes next? Just chew on that for just a second. Satan leaves and the angels come from heaven. How long were the angels there? Standing off to the side. This is a battle only for me. The angels come and they minister to Jesus. This word ministered, it means that they, they served him in very practical ways. we not told, but I'm, I'm pretty sure they gave him food. He was hungry. And it was probably angel food cake. I know, I know. I, I didn't even write it into my notes. I didn't even write it down just knowing it was going to come out anyway. Now, now in closing, I want to leave you quickly with just three thoughts to chew on. A lot to unpack in this story. Three things to chew on. First, there is no doubt you walk away from this passage. One, one reality should be there. We have a real enemy. Spiritual warfare, because we have an enemy, is inescapable. And Satan's attacks have never changed. They've never changed. Paul wrote, and, and don't, don't misunderstand, Ephesians six twelve. for we do not, speaking of Christians, we don't wrestle Against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age. I don't know who those are, but they're scary. Against spiritual hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Again, real enemy. A battle is inescapable. But never forget there's only three categories in which the enemy will seek to entice you to move from God's will into rebellion. Out from his provision. Out from his promises. Out from his... His plan. He'll appeal to the lust of the flesh, your physical desires, the fallen nature, the body, the lust of the eyes, the sensory appeal to the fallen nature, the mind, pride of life, that ego, the soul. And yet, let me give you a little encouragement. Satan only attacks those in whom he's threatened by. It's often when someone gives their life to Jesus, they experience the most intense season of temptation. Why? Because they've just been snatched from the darkness of hell. And Satan goes, so if you are in a season of of, of temptation and and attack, take a step back as well. I'm doing something that's threatening, which should be good. Secondly, and the way that we see Jesus combat Satan he illustrates the, the fact that there, the only real way that you can avoid believing a lie is to know the truth. In all three temptations, Jesus was able to pinpoint the lie that was being used by Satan to entice him from God's will. How? By utilizing the scriptures, specifically quoting from Deuteronomy we got knucklehead pastors running around saying, well, we don't need the Old Testament. Jesus did. Specifically Deuteronomy. You know? He wielded the sword. I love it. Ephesians 6, verse 17. Our weapon is the sword of the Spirit. And then he defines it, which is the Word of God. The only way to avoid the lie is to know the truth. Do you know the truth? Lastly, the entire story confirms, and again, it's the point, it's the purpose, but I love it. Don't miss it. Jesus is the king. Jesus is the king. Like this story, this, this was like the greatest mismatch ever. This was not a, a great battle between foes, good versus evil. This was God smacking down his, a created being, fallen angel. Like, the two are not equals. And within the exchange, Jesus not only validated his power and authority as God, but he demonstrated how even Satan is subject to his authority and word. Again, not exactly all that relatable, but when I read the story, I'm inspired. That's my king. Christian, when you face the attacks of the enemy, never forget Your King Jesus has already won the war. He's the victor. And so instead of attempting to stand in your own strength, you can always fall back on the reality that he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. As David declared to Goliath in 1 Samuel 17, may we remember, the battle is the Lord's. So, Father, Lord, we thank you for your word and the story and what it says to us. In Jesus' name, amen.